feast of the Immaculate Heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Today it is a great pleasure to welcome Ryan Grant to discuss the English Civil War and the creation of modernity. Mr Grant is the founder of Mediatrix Press. He has a bachelor's degree in philosophy and theology. He is a professional translator having translated several volumes of St Robert Bellarmine I believe and is also a credential researcher in the Vatican Apostolic Library. Ryan has taught high school Latin for seven years and spent over 15 years studying theology, history and art continuously and conducted primary manuscript research. He is a regular interviewee on EWTN, the Taylor Marshall Show, Resistance Radio on the Census for Dalian channel, the Mike Church Show and has spoken at several parish churches on the life and theology of St. Robert Bellarmine, the Reformation and the 16th century generally. And personally, I've listened to your really excellent recent talks at, is it May Today Parish in Dallas, in Texas, on the English Reformation from Henry VII to James I. Mr. Grant, uh, welcome to Vendée Radio. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I... As I say, I really commend to our listeners those uh, excellent talks on the English Reformation. And seeing as I've spoken, uh, interviewed uh, Charles Coulomb on Jacobitism, I thought that it would be useful to consider the English Revolution, what we might call the English Revolution of the 17th century, because Catholics give much consideration, quite rightly, to the imports of both the Protestant and French revolutions in this process of the dissolution of Christendom. And we've talked before on this program about the three great revolutions against Christendom uh, in, in uh, 1517 and 1717 with the, with the, the uh, unification of the Masonic lodges and the French Revolution following, and then in 1917 with the, the Russian Revolution and, and Bolshevism and Communism. But the, the crucial bridge, as, as many have commented, between the first Protestant Revolution 
and the the second enlightenment and then the culmination of the french revolution seems to be the english revolution what took place in the 17th century that's where the radicalism of the protestant you could say the fire of the protestant revolution transitions into a political radicalism and so the revolutionary flame as dr plinio called it passed to england and this english revolution took place in the english civil wars or the wars of the three kingdoms and the regicide of charles the first in 1649 and then there followed something of a, a sort of semi counter-revolution with the restoration of charles the second his son in 1660 but when the possibility of a fuller catholic counter-revolution looked possible with the accession of charles's brother james II in 1685 the Whig oligarchy uh, who had been greatly enriched by the the dissolution of the monasteries and the the seizure of of church property conspired to overrode james II and ensure the the personal victories of the strongest private wills in society and establish a crowned republic and this glorious revolution in 1688 represented the triumph of the the money power of the bourgeoisie and the final seemingly irrevocable loss of england to the protestant revolution so to hear uh, refute the black legends surrounding the revolution and reveal the, the truth behind these momentous events and, and perhaps the best place to start would be to provide a, a sketch of the Elizabethan settlement of England. Well, certainly. The, it, it's interesting that the English uh, Revolution, um, or popularly in the history books, the English Civil War, is so little known to Americans because it's very much the matrix of so much of the thought that becomes what develops the United States. And it's also interesting that... Uh, 150 years before the guillotines of the French Revolution come crashing down, the English kill their own king. So how does it all... And it actually starts with the first whereby absolutism appears in the history of English kingship, which is principally when Henry VIII breaks from Rome. And the way he breaks from Rome is what's really determinant of all the courts that will take place in the history, uh, the further history, which is that... He doesn't nearly say, okay, well, you excommunicated me, I'm going to start my own church. He, he passes through Parliament the act of royal supremacy. He is the supreme head, or the Pope, as it were, of the English church, which is essentially like saying he's not, not merely the lord of the bodies, of the, of the souls of the kingdom, but also, I'm sorry, the, the bodies of those who live in the kingdom, but also their souls. Yes. He is the spiritual head of heaven in every way, as well as in the physical. So this passes on um, through his son Edward. Mary uh, renounces it, has the royal supremacy undone. Uh, she dies, and Catholicism is once again subverted in favor of Protestantism. And Elizabeth immediately has uh, it passed through Parliament that the royal supremacy is now reimposed. So without going through too much of Elizabeth's the the politics around her, such as William Cecil, or again several others, what they do is to craft a, a particular vision of what is the divine right of kings without calling it such. There is a sense in which in Cecil, who is probably perhaps one of the great statesmen of that period, and, so, and probably you know, could be alleged to be one of the best in English history, I should say, in terms of his abilities. Um, uh, not so much in favor of accomplishments, but certainly his abilities as a statesman are beyond doubt. And so to keep 
the the magic and the almost semi-divinity of the monarchy intact while at the same time enshrining a place for parliament and allowing you know a sense where the aristocracy can work with the monarch in so many different ways and you see in painting and portraiture how elizabeth is presented to the people on the one hand you know similar to, uh, almost like the virgin mary the way in which she's decorated and dressed is somewhat redolent of uh, some renaissance and the more elaborate renaissance clothing of the blessed version but again in other cases you see her showing her absolute power and she's wears this the rainbow portrait Right, it's a rather famous one, where her gown has eyes and ears, which are basically saying, "All right, me and you Catholics of the North, I'm looking at you. I hear everything. I see everything." Because she's through uh, Walt created this massive yes. spy service, and he he was so a leading Rosicrucian, or, and there's all sort of ties into early occult activity there, right? Right, which uh, he imported from Venice, but because um, he was trained by the Venetians while he was living in Italy during Queen Mary's reign. Mm-hmm. Although that part doesn't quite make it into most of the official biographies of him, but sure. <laughs> can't talk about that. So, nevertheless, Elizabeth's reign then is so bad for the church, the Catholic Church, the true church, because what's happening is you have a majority Catholic country with a minority Protestant in London and in some of the surrounding areas. But the power of the monarchy, which has the, the pulpits, the press, all the information that's allowed to be known that that can be put out is in control of Cecil and with Elizabeth's direction and, and the, the Protestant clique in London. So, secondly, you have you know, the terrible penalties that are inflicted long before uh, the Spanish Armada. We might add because one of the the refrains you get in history as well. Elizabeth was tolerant, but then the Spanish Armada happened, and she had to defend the country, so she had to ratchet up those penalties against Catholics. Well, the reality is uh, you have the act, uh, Jesuits, etc., already, you know, shortly after her her reign. So all the penalties that come against recusants are very early, and they're very draconian. Okay, the uh, the, the spies, the uh, Richard Topcliffe, this is all pre-Armada that, that uh, these events are taking place. And so the and then they continue to get augmented after, naturally. So you have kind of this system gradually crushing out Catholicism from the north of England. And then, um, so the Elizabethan settlement then leaves, uh, you know, this cult of personality that's created around the monarch. And the notion of almost a semi-divinity is what they've tried to craft. In the face of it, it's actually coming becoming stale by the end of Elizabeth's reign. She's actually become somewhat unpopular. And uh, you could see that uh, when with the Essex revolts, right, the Essex plot, where there is a popular move that at least Elizabeth is being misled by her counselors. Now, Robert Cecil, uh, William Cecil's son, and others become kind of the hated, you know, target, right? So... It, you know, it, there is this waning of Elizabeth's popularity that, again, they have the work to recraft. And so the way in which we view Elizabeth is actually mediated by the English Revolution, where in the lead-up to it, where Elizabeth's reign is, is uh, depicted as being this glorious, wonderful times, golden age. Now, under the Stuarts, it's gotten so bad. <laughs> and, and it's so, almost like a justification for what would come later. So, but nevertheless, 
Elizabeth dies childless, and so James VI of Scotland comes to rule. Now, James has a very large family, and of course, there, you know, for some of the religious Protestant minorities in the country, such as the Puritans, this is a good sign. James was raised in the Kirk. James had in very heavily Presbyterian, very low church. And so the, the, the Presbyterian, uh, I should say that that line hadn't really been drawn yet, but certainly the Puritan minority, which is very all-embracing. When you say Puritan, um, your listeners have said a very different meaning than what it has for Americans. Americans think of the pilgrims, rather dapple, a smile would crack your face, they don't have any fun, they're rather uh, narrow-minded, Bible-thumping, uh, fundamentalist type of thing, which of course is, is not true. And as most of your listeners know, Puritans were rather, um, they were well, they learned Latin and Greek, they played at bowls, it, it, it was in religion specifically where they were rather dour. You can't have any, you know, ceremonies, you can't, even the organ is suspect, right? Yeah. You, can't, you can't do these things because that's, that's popish and that's bad. Voltaire said, in Calvin's Geneva, not a single musical instrument entered the city for 150 years. Indeed, that, that wouldn't surprise me one bit, actually. Uh, so the in uh, but in, so in England, there is this kind of this hopefulness amongst the Puritan class that oh wow, you know, well, now we have the, this Presbyterian king who's going to set things to right in religion. Well, he doesn't actually. What happens is James comes to England. He rather goes native, at least as far as religion goes. In the Kirk. He was raised in this rather dour environment by George Buchanan, one of the big, uh, the Scottish, one of the major Scottish uh, humanists. Buchanan whipped him repeatedly and was was rather uh, overbearing with him. The Kirk was a forbidding place, and he, as the king, had to sit with the you know cowering before the minister with his hat on. Well, he comes to England, and he's in the Chapel Royal with his marvelous work and and beauty. And he's in the royal box, and he's looking down, and the minister is looking up, cowering before the king. And James says, "I rather like this. <laughs> this is this is the way things should be." And so it, he goes. He even manages to try to work some of this back into Scotland. You know, before uh, and in the sixteen twenties, before his death, he manages to get the Scots to accept bishops again, which was through a very careful political process. James comes to England with this view of monarchy that differs a little bit from, from Elizabeth. He's a good politician, so he realizes that he has to be more, more cautious about how he rules because you have parliament, you have English traditions and, and liberties and law and so many. So James runs a very cautious monarchy in that regard, and he has a lot of enemies still. And within the, the parliamentary class, uh, within which is to say the new millionaires that were created in the theft of domestic pro property during the Reformation, and now their heirs yeah. in, uh, in you know the grandchildren now who um, you know come to a certain degree of status, they they have a rather different vision government and their role in the government, in what kind of influence they might be able to exert. So you have. Um, this, this kind of this beginnings of this clash already beginning under James, but they don't quite get there. And there's many others say uh, in this vein, but they will get, you know, sidetracked. James dies, and now his son Charles takes over. Now Charles was not initially intended to be uh, the king; he was rather spare. It was Henry who was supposed to be, but he died. 
So Charles, who had been sickly as a child, has imbibed James's law of free monarchies, very much so, and is, is also enamored with the magic and the sacraments uh, of monarchy. In fact, it's interesting, you look through uh, the Canterbury, William Loud, at this time, his, his notes on the coronation are very illustrative. Charles wants to put his foot in the slipper of St. Edward, the chair to touch specifically everything. It's, it's very sacramental in the way you use uh, the kingship even. So it's very, very much a realization of James's notion. Okay, but contrary to the way, certainly the way an American would think about um, the kings, he doesn't see it as, well, I only have God as a judge, so I can do whatever I want. Charles views it, rather, this is a sacred charge. So just as he, he wants to touch all the instruments of monarchy, and it, that he's becoming, <clears throat> like hand and glove, like substance and accident, the very father of his own people, mm. he needs to rule for the good of his own people. And so that in, in spite of all his excesses and many of his other problems, the one thing he is not really despotic. Charles looks at his, you know, his authority as being for the good of the kingdom. And as things will develop, it becomes increasingly clear to him that those who are opposing him in the ways in which they're opposing him are harm to the kingdom. So that it's just as a kind of a backdrop for what will follow, um, Charles, as a youth, um, with kind of a acquiescence of his father had gone to Spain because he thought perhaps he'd marry the Spanish Infanta. And the, Sp the Spaniards actually said, well, we won't even consider it unless you give all these concessions that, that defend the rights of Catholics in Spain. I'm sorry, in England. Mm. Uh, and, and that was, you know, the, the, he, you know, Buckingham, you know, Charles might have accepted something like that, but Buckingham knew this would never get past Parliament. And also with the background of the gunpowder plot mm. and something that will... Um, well, I mean, you still have fireworks on the fifth, so it it it's still even today echoes as when Catholics try to blow up Parliament, and there's been no you know period where Englishmen have forgotten that part of it, and in this country as well actually we just renamed it Fox Day, and that that's uh, or, or no Pope Day because it's all called like Fox Day Pope Day is what we renamed it because they burned the Pope in effigy mm. and uh, you know it's the time of the revolution very heavily because of the propaganda. In reality, the gunpowder plot's rather interesting because there there's three views of it. One is of course the the official government story right after the event that uh, these disaffected Catholics tried to do this, but at the last moment, warned by Lord Mount uh, Lord Mount Eagle. The, you know, the light of heaven came upon King James and he interpreted the letter correctly and, just, and realized that this was a plot to blow up Parliament with gunpowder and he caught it just in time. Um, you know, very few hold to that, that view absolutely, that that is precisely what happened exactly as the government laid it out in 1605. Then there's a second view, which is the mainstream view for the most part, which is, the, although it differs in, it, in itself, the English government knew something about the plot or through its spies and intelligence had discovered it, but allowed it to widen to see how many people it could capture, how many people they could draw in, especially mm -hmm. any priests or Jesuits, which is precisely what happened. They had the Jesuit superior, uh, Henry Garnet, that uh, was alleged to know it 
And it's actually complicated how he gets involved with it. Because he's not involved in it. One of the plotters goes to confession to him, and he's in a moral quandary. So he asked simply if he could be transferred out of the country, and his superior said no. So the, um, and then there's the third view, which is that Robert Cecil and the English government, had, at least to a certain extent, I mean, whenever any kind of conspiracy takes place, it's not the government, as in every single sin and lockstep. Mm. It's always people only have the information that they need to have. Because plotters are, are very usually very careful with this, and actually a good number of conspiracies can uh, succeed because of this fact and general public incredulity. Um, <laughs> so it, the third view, it's a minority view, um, it's the one I hold to, but it, the case can't be convicted positively, is that says more or less hatches this plot. It's several Catholics who are all involved in the Essex plot, by the way, uh, Thomas Percy, even Lord Monteagle was involved in the Essex plot. And technically, they all should have been uh, killed as traitors, right? But they weren't. They were basically released with a sort of Damocles to do the state's bidding. And another interesting thing, and also they used another factor in that, which is that uh, James had made peace with Spain. Mm. So now England could go to the Netherlands and join uh, English regiments that had been fighting for the king of Spain against the Dutch Protestants. Mm-hmm. This was uh, not a particularly um, positive thing for, for Robert Cecil because he's looking at this and saying, well, uh, uh, great, a well-trained English Catholic army in the Netherlands ready to cross the channel. That's bad. Something about this. And there was literally nothing he could do. Um, so what happens is that uh, the gunpowder that, according to this view, this third view of the gunpowder plot, the, um, the plotters who are actually agents of the English government, were pulling in as many innocent Catholics as they can convince, so like a massive state entrapment. Um, not much different than you see today when you find this, this, this supposed terror plot that's reported in the media, at least in this country, in the United States, that is. And then the media will start, someone will actually ask questions, which is rather rare. And then the government will admit, well, yes, without the FBI agent providing him the, the, the goods, yeah. And the bomb and uh, the training and even the, the agitation and encouragement, they wouldn't blow anything up. Mm. But we're still going to put them in jail for terrorism anyway. Like the unpants bomber. Precisely. So, so here we are where you have uh, Robert Catsby, Thomas Percy, that are both, uh, and actually there's a Jesuit who wrote a book on this, and he actually has evidence from the English archives of Percy and Cecil meeting, which uh, certainly give, bolsters this view a little bit more. And it could very well be that Guy Fox really believed he was guarding gunpowder for the English regiment in Flanders and had no notion of blowing up Parliament at all. Mm. And, and I think that would be rather interesting if that turned out to be true. But as I mentioned, though, this view, even though um, it's interesting and it has evidence for it, case cannot be convicted that it is so. Yes. And, and ultimately, either way, it really doesn't matter because the government pulled this off spectacularly, uh, whether it knew about it and allowed it to widen or had, in fact, created it. It really doesn't matter. This is precisely, you know, the, the, they, got, they got the effect they wanted. Yeah. And now Catholics in many areas, especially in the north, are now looked upon as suspicion. Being Catholic is essentially like being an Arab after 9-11, right? If you're an Arab, it didn't matter how, uh, you know, how a Christian Arab, actually. Just the mm. fact that you're Arab meant you too might be plotting to you know to fly a plane to this or that building, mm. or some other foolish thing like that, and so this is rather the way Catholics are viewed now. 
And so it works masterfully. So anyway, so fast forward back to Charles. Charles in, uh, has to marry. And we end up uh, choosing, and it's not the Spanish Infanta. It is rather the French uh, princess, Henrietta Marie. Mm. And Henrietta Marie, so the, the, she's Catholic. She actually gets a dispensation from Pope Paul V to, oh, no, no, sorry, wait, which year are we in? No, no, I'm sorry. This is a, would have been Urban VIII, not Paul Urban VIII, yeah. That, uh, gave dispensation for her to marry. So Cardinal Richelieu, the lays down, you know, that one of the things we want you to do is work on reconverting England, mm-hmm. right? So, so we know this was the case. And that's certainly how the English saw her presence in England. And, uh, and she, was so a, much, she was a formidable character, great nobility. Contemporary accounts say that she inherited the, the qualities of her father, Henry Le Grand, uh, the most out mm-hmm. of his progeny. Right. That that's certainly how I read it, um, and of course you have to through so much of the propaganda is rather, um, in, in even even contemporaries on the other side viewed her with great suspicion and great hatred also for her Catholicism. Modern historians present her as rather this, uh, you know, foolish French girl didn't understand anything about English politics. Um, as we'll see, that's actually not so, mm. and and she was um, rather dignified and looked at herself as fundamentally English, as a queen of England. She saw herself not as um, some sneering French arrogant aristocrat looking down on the people the way that some historians would like to present her. It's rather much like Marie Antoinette, yep. who was not at all the way that she was portrayed, um, even textbook, let alone uh, by the French revolutionaries. Or even the Tsarina Alexandra. Oh, yes. There's a, there's a kind of demonic pattern to these revolutions in a sense indeed and well how it works i think um it's certainly in the united states anyway i see it as living through some of the lead up to these sorts of things but um what we're going through now mm. and, and i know in other countries are seeing the same thing but i don't know the extent whereas i do here i see it and uh looks rather much like the french revolution but anyway, apart from those obiter dicta henrietta marie then is married to charles and immediately that Creates some, you know, some consternation in England, but not nearly as much as George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham. So Buckingham, more or less, uh, Charles promotes him to so many different things. He gives him posts in the government, and he's rather a dandy, somewhat incompetent. There's even rumors that uh, he and uh, that, that Buckingham and James were homosexual. You see that some people like to present that. I'm not entirely sure that's true, and because I always get suspicious when when you make a claim that. Um, you know, men in this this time period or that time period were homosexual, and then you get through the evidence, and evidence is really just one letter where he speaks affectionately. Yeah. And, uh, well, men used to speak affectionately to each other without having any in, any of the baggage of the modern-day, you know, thought. Think so, to, to the jaundiced eye, everything is yellow. Right. And it's one thing when you're talking about someone like Hans Finkelman, the founder of art history, who was avowedly so. But when you get to, you know, this being alleged later on the base of one letter, another one is Michelangelo Buonarroti, mm-hmm. uh, the famous sculptor. And it's alleged he was gay because he didn't have, uh, he wasn't married and wasn't known to womanize. So therefore, obviously, according to the modern mind. And then there's, uh, there's one uh, nobleman that he was on very good terms with. But he also wrote a very passionate letter to the Marquesa de Colonna, so, you know, which is very much in the same terms. 
as his friend. And so now they might get back and say, oh, well, he was bisexual then. No, the answer is he wasn't at all. Mm-hmm. Because he says something that, it, it actually kind of encompasses a medieval view, that sexual activity takes away some of your creative energy. And for Michelangelo, who really believes yes. that, he says as much, he mm-hmm. really believed that, that he would lose. And he also has the example of Raphael, who was the, the consummate womanizer. <clears throat> and uh, where did he get? Well, you know, Michelangelo outlived him by 40 years. So he has that example as well as to why dalliances of that sort simply not, it's not his, it's not where he wants to go. So, so likewise with James, so with, with uh, Charles, so, the, so George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, um, and by the way, forgive my pronunciations of various words. I know that um, there's probably a whole slew of them that I've not said right at some place. I know that too. The, um, so, so Buckingham, you know, he's given all these jobs. He's a, he's a failure, a miserable failure in military, in um, you know, in the various invasions of like Cadiz, and it, you know, Francis Drake had invaded Cadiz with great success. Uh, he makes a mess of it, and this is be kind of the beginning of the, the reinterpretation of the Elizabethan golden age, because they they see all these failures, Charles and Buckingham in war, and in so many other things. Um, then there's a you know. A, proposed alliance uh, um, with the French. And, and it, 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 they were supposed to be allies on account of the marriage, but it didn't quite win. So now it's kind of waxing and waning. All the, politi- all the international politics are in uproar. And locally, um, <clears throat> there's just this angst that Buckingham has all these roles. And there's further angst over religious issues. Mm-hmm. One of the things Loud is concerned about is that the Archbishop of Canterbury, he sees not just Henrietta Marie having her own chapel and her own private priests and uh, celebrating mass, but people in the aristocracy are going with her to view this popish thing like it. Mm. They find it's beautiful. It has the beauty of holiness. It's very attractive. So conversions begin to happen in the aristocracy. So um, the last straw for Loud is when uh, Buckingham, the father and sister, convert to the faith. And before they could do it, um, Loud dra- has a Jesuit dragged out of prison named Fisher, and they have a public debate. And interestingly, the debate turns on Bellarmine. Hmm. And, and so they're, they're arguing basically all these various points out of Bellarmine. made a good number of notes on Bellarmine, uh, which could be found in his works. It's, it's in print. Um, it, it's all in Latin. I don't know if anyone's ever translated it, but it's rather interesting going through his notes on Bellarmine because he was very much a high church sacramental Anglican. He was an Arminian, wasn't he? So he he, he yes. refuted uh, predestination, which is a key tenet of Calvinism. Precisely, and he would, but he was also distinctly Protestant, in spite yes. of that. Yes, and not at all Catholic. When Charles had uh, you know ascended the throne, um, the Pope had offered him uh, you know if he became Catholic, they would give uh, Loud a cardinal's hat, make That's him a right. cardinal, yeah. right? which of course Loud wanted nothing to do with. Mm. And he says as much in this particular debate. He said, you know, debating um, in points of Bellarmine on the papacy with this Jesuit priest named Fisher that he's dragged out of prison. He says, well, if, uh, you know, it could be shown to me that the Pope really has this authority, I should accept Rome without any further ado. But I shan't until I, unless I don't, and then may God spare me and take me. <laughs> he's very clearly not Catholic. Hmm. But the things he does as Archbishop and his preference for Popish ceremonies, as it were, these are the things that lead many to believe, oh, he's a secret Catholic. He's trying to pose Rome on us. 
And so seeing the, uh, the Buckinghams convert, not George Lear, but it's his mother and sister, then um, Loud says, okay, this is a very serious problem. I need to take this on. We need to show that Protestantism has the beauty of holiness. We need to show that this can be a, a valid and sacramental and, and beautiful religion, too. And, you know, to use a modern phrase, we'll win hearts and minds this way. Well, unfortunately, he alienated most hearts and minds this way. Um, so what you see, again, is actually the raising of the altars. Mm -hmm. Even the rood is raised in some places where it was ripped out under Elizabethan times. The, uh, you know, so again, altars are going up, rails are going up, roods are going up. The, um, you know, music, mm -hmm. sacred music is being, you know, advocated. And especially in London itself, which is more heavily low church than in many other places, and welcomed in certain places in the country, but others uh, were very unhappy about these changes. And so it, it leads to the general agitation, and you know, combined with the Duke of Buckingham having seemingly complete control of the government while at the same time being completely incompetent, there is, they, they bring out the petition of right, so they, uh, they they want they want to impeach Buckingham. They, you know, all these demands for Parliament's rights. They, you know, and they cloak in so much language, like in Magna Carta, the rights of Englishmen and so many things. So, you know, they they demand. Um, you know, it becomes one of these cornerstone documents of West civilization, even though it actually had no force whatsoever. Charles rejected it, but. Um, you know, not having, uh, you know, martial law, not the king not having armies. There's actually language in, um, in, in the American, the United States founders, you know, where they're standing armies. You see it in the Declaration of Independence and stuff. It's actually, you know, its origin comes right, right in this document where they, they condemn the king for having standing armies because Gosh. Protestants were beginning to fear the king might really be part of a Catholic to, or maybe unwittingly, to... Uh, bring in the army, kill good Protestants in their beds, and make everybody, you know, again, take away their Bibles and make them worship the Virgin Mary. And this language and this, this fear of standing armies linked to the reimposition of Catholicism will show up and again and again all the way through 1776. It will be a fear <laughs> that, that comes around again. Could I just, so, just, sorry, quickly interject on just on this point? It's just to say that context here is crucial, the wider European context, because the, there is justifiable in, on the part of the, the heretics uh, uh, Protestant anxiety with the, the high tide of the Counter-Reformation coming and the, the decline of Protestantism. You, you've seen in the, by the 1570s, Catholic prelates such as Dernbach and Mespelbrunn in, in Germany begin to turn the tide and the Jesuit St. Peter Canisius the Apostle of Germany brought a new spirit into the life of the church. In 1607, the seizure by the Duke of Bavaria of the imperial city of Donauwörth, where the work of the Jesuits had reversed Protestant gains, marked a new confidence in the Catholic party, and an appropriated church in the city was restored to hands to the impotent fury of Protestant Germany. So there's this revitalized Catholic confidence. The Catholic Church finally had got act together following Trent and was pushing back Protestantism on all fronts. And the first pillar of that Catholicism was Spain, which loomed as the great power of Europe and uh, financed by American bullion. The Habsburg armies were uh, dominating the European 
system. In France, the the French wars of religion are particularly interesting because the progress of Calvinism gave rise there to the Catholic League of 1584. And what you see is is the king, basically, Henry IV, uh, his salvation of the city. But it was this revolutionary wave helped by Spanish intervention that kept Henry in his capital for six years. His con- his conversion was a victory for cynicism and laissez-allure, but it did not quench the feeling lit in, in the country. When St. Vincent de Paul came to Paris soon after the wars, he found, quote, saints, veritable saints in great number and everywhere. The religious zeal was shown by such figures as Madame Acari, who maintained a spiritual salon in Paris until her death in 1619. The Compagnie des Saints Sacrements, founded in 1627, promoted Catholic charity and missions and enjoyed the support of Queen Anne, consort of Louis XIII, together with many courtiers. The Daughters of Charity, founded by St. Vincent de Paul in 1630, similarly promoted the spirit of Catholic good works amongst aristocratic ladies. And this is all part of a milieu of this uh, of the of an age of great saints of uh, Saint Francis de Sales of Saint Vincent de Paul, and then you have the Rome of the first third of the seventeenth century, providing one of the highest examples of civilized society under the guidance of the Catholic Church. So, so these achievements mark an age in which the Church not merely kept pace with contemporary civilization, but continued to lead it. Any observer of the European scene in 1618 and still more in 1630 would have found that despite a century of Protestant revolt, Catholic culture was unmistakably in the ascendant. In that culture, moreover, the church was no residual presence. It led society in the arts, in abstract thought and in the secular sciences. For this reason and others, the Tridentine period, which may be seen in its full flowering in the first third of the 17th century, deserves to be ranked among the greatest epochs of the church so that that is just to say that this is the context for this this severe protestant anxiety and not without reason and there's also a connection to englishmen from the events going on in the continent uh that that goes back to king james so king james had married his daughter elizabeth to the elector of the the palatinate and the holy roman emperor there to frederick yes so uh and of course, they, they would have children, uh, you know, Rupert, Maurice, etc., that, that later will play a part in this story. So the, the opening salvo of the Thirty Years' War in, in the Empire in Germany begins in, in Bohemia, in uh, what is today Czech, where the Bohemians uh, always had issues, at least for the last 200 years, it had issues with the church, the, the Hussites, right? They're still around, some of them. Lutriquism is still a big thing. That is the, the belief that you have to have both the, the host and the chalice at mass. And <clears throat> strong Lutheranism had taken hold there as well. So they invited, they actually threw the imperial officials, uh, and they were very he- heavy-handed in their tax collecting, unfortunately, which, which provoked some of this anyway. Mm. Then long-standing hatred and things. They throw out the royal officials literally out of the window, the, the defenestration of Prague. And uh, the, the royal officials are saved by landing in a dung, dung hill. So which, uh, it makes for a good number of jokes and plays in this history. Then uh, they invite Frederick, the uh, elector, to come and be the king of the Bohemians. Right? So Frederick expected that he would have a wave of Protestant support that would come to back him. And so he and Elizabeth, James's daughter, go over to Bohemia. He sets up as their king. And the Protestant support in the empire never actually comes. Instead, he undergoes the Reichsbahn. The uh, the other Protestant electors just, just you know say, oh wow, now we 
and take his land and take his territory. This is great. So they side with the Catholics, and then the Catholics uh, Germany, which fights at the Battle of the White Mountain. In the meantime, Frederick's strict Calvinism and alienated both the uh, Lutheran and Catholic uh, Czechs, so he had almost no internal support either, and so he was handily defeated, uh, which at the time was taken as a gift of the faith, you know, even though this yes. is just uh, the opening salvo of the horrors that would come for the Thirty Years' War, unfortunately. And so uh, Frederick and Elizabeth and their children uh, were exiled, and they were also exiled from their own home, so they took refuge in the Netherlands, styled as the King of Bohemia in exile, right? Uh, it's rather an interesting thing, so that Protestants, if they would fight, they would continue fighting against the empire, <clears throat> especially at different uh, periods of the Thirty Years' War. In mm -hmm. crossing the Channel to fight for good queen, you know, good queen Bess of, of <laughs> Czech, because it was one of their own, and they they actually reckoned themselves like knights errants in, in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you know, coming to <clears throat> fight for one of their own abroad, and what uh, the effect of this is that. Um, among other things, you, of course, you have uh, Prince Rupert of the Rhine and um, his brother Maurice that will then come over and, and uh, during the English uh, Revolution and fight on the side of the king. Mm. They have another brother who will fight on the side of the parliament, actually. And the other thing is you have a large number of Englishmen being trained in continental warfare who will then come back <clears throat> well-trained in, 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 in loyalty that took place, and so that, that will affect a certain character, actually, when the fighting starts out. But mm -hmm. So to get back on point, Loud begins raising the altars, and Protestant altars, but altars nonetheless, and, you know, that's hateful. Then the petition of right is dismissed, and so there, there is only one thing that the, the parliamentary party, you know, could possibly do. So some of their members go and actually murder George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, in, in probably the assassinated yeah. and, uh, in uh, 1628. So the, this, this angers Charles. Um, he dismayed, dissolves Parliament, and he won't call it again in years. And this begins the period of his personal rule. Yeah. Uh, and this is also some of the cause of the problem. Uh, you know, so Charles, all these parliaments are just so much trouble. Look what happened to my good friend George Lear. Now, of course, that happened. That had actually had a positive effect on his marriage, though. His wife, uh, you know, Henry, was very you know unhappy with Charles. The death of Buckingham forced him to turn to her, and they make a real romance out of it, actually. And uh, as unlikely as that would be, and it it ends up uh, becoming a very loving, a very close marriage. Mm. Um. Charles then, you know, begin, as he begins the, you know, the personal role, he is, you know, Whitehall, uh, you know, redecorated. He brings in Rubens from um, Spanish Netherlands to come and paint the great scene, the, the scene you see of uh, James being ascended, in, uh, the apotheosis of James, James ascending into heaven uh, on the on the ceiling there. And uh, and actually, Rubens is a masterful painter. He's also a diplomat working on behalf of the Spanish, and yes. he is courtly and polished, uh, you know. Polished nobility about him. He's actually made uh, noble by the Spanish, which had a lot of opposition because, well, he can't be noble. He works with his hands. He actually does things. Mm. We can't have that. He embodies um, the Confirmation Baroque maturity of the faith. Yeah. And and he was a devout man. Uh, he did not have mistresses, which um, is surprising to some, giving some of the the scenes he paints in, in different ways with um with, with the mythology scenes and whatnot. So many. Um, 
so many nudes and things. But for him, actually, that was his was way of like stories, mm. uh, stories that, that fit his philosophical stoicism. And his wife died. He was he was celibate monk until he remarried later in life. And, and we know this because the French tried very desperately to get as much dirt on him as they could once they discovered that he was a diplomat working for the Spanish, which is brilliant because he would go somewhere to paint and he'd actually also be gathering information and you know and then carrying out diplomatic without anybody knowing about it. So, nevertheless, uh, he convinces Charles to not go to war with the Spanish and even nudges him in the direction of war with France and that uh, you can have a temporary thing, but of course when you have trouble at home, war abroad is always a good, a good way. His problem is money. He just doesn't have enough money. Yes. So, uh, nevertheless, tensions are similar. You know, so one of the men who's paying the most attention to everything and collecting it all down, Pym. Hmm. Now, Pym is a masterful politician and propagandist, really. And, and propagandist, really. And John Pym, that is. He is keeping tabs on so many things, and so he begins, uh, you know, writing tracts on how the, the, <clears throat> the Pope is trying to secretly invade England. Jesuits! are in, in mass, you know, just waiting to slaughter good Protestants in their beds and things of this sort. So then, you know, and people start to believe it. Yeah. Um, He's a Puritan. You know, in the count, yes, yeah, Pym is a Puritan. Um, you know, the king is part of an unwitting, maybe as an unwitting member, because he's going to watch out like he gets put in from this prison of treason or something. So he says the king is merely an unwitting member of a consistent by his wife. And Wayne Lau, they're all secret papists to bring in papal rule in England, right? And so this, this people buy it up. Um, much as you see in the United States right now, there's this very odd theory that uh, President Trump is trying to steal all the mailboxes, even though they have a single mailbox being stolen. And um, I'm not so big on Trump, but on the other hand, the, the, the left's hysteria over him, it, it actually rather reminds me of some of the, the Puritan, you know, hysteria than that that Charles may or may not be doing. Yes. So the... Uh, People are looking under their bed now, looking for Jesuits in places where <laughs> nobody's seen one probably in 25 years. The uh, there are actually you know priests being you know found and now, right? And interestingly, things had been so so mild, especially in terms of government persecution, that Rome had actually appointed a bishop. Yes, there was no um, there were no religious executions for 11 years, I think, as, that coincided with Charles's personal rule. That's right. And so uh, Bishop Smith, uh, he was the, uh, a titular archbishop that had authority over all the missionary priests uh, you know, operating in England. And he was right there in London. He tried to give away his location. And the government said, thank you, and nothing was done. And it would just kind of alert him should move and draw less attention to himself. Yeah. And eventually he had to depart, and that's a whole other story. Uh, bishop Smith uh, also getting involved with Jesuits and, and so many things. Um, but nevertheless, this is kind of the hysteria that's being whipped up against, uh, you know, against the Catholics and Loud in particular. And then there is another thing. So in Loud, you know, in Charles, they want to take the vision of altars, the beauty and holiness of Protestantism, and they want to bring it to Scotland. Hmm. Now, in Scotland, they viewed it rather as the the, the Reformation didn't quite. Go Far enough, yeah. And uh, in England, so and you alerted to, averted to the Kirk earlier, um, which is actually the Cathedral of Saint Giles in Edinburgh. 
and they simply called it the Kirk, um, you know, where it, which also was divided up into various buildings too. I mean, they, various offices that were walled up. Uh, wasn't merely just a, a church any longer. Uh, of course, properly whitewashed and removed of images and, and such things. So Charles goes in and visits with some of the divines in, in Scotland and announces that he wants to unify the kingdom's work in a, a good godly book for them. Well, then it appears the, uh, the, the common prayer for the administration of the sacraments for the Church of Scotland. So Sir Thomas Hopp, who was on the king's uh, privy council for Scotland, at it, and he says, the red hand of the Pope in Rome couldn't have given us a more popish book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, this is the Book of Common Prayer, mind you, yeah. which uh, specifically calls various Catholic doctrines blasphemy. But it was too popish. I mean, the priest has to wear a surplus. We can't have that. And uh, so many revol- revolts all over, this is 1637, there's revolts all over the, uh, the, the country. And even in um, Edinburgh itself, there is a... Um, there was a woman who threw a chair at the Bishop of Edinburgh as he tried to complete the service. And they said, out with the popish book and everything. So after that, they actually have to say the, the Anglican service under lock and key, lest the people throw them out of the church or even kill them. And so the, the Scots formed the National Covenant, and that's are called Covenanters. And so the Solemn League and Covenant declared the principles of the Scottish Presbyterian Church. And that is the most perfect and reformed church on earth. And, you know, and we need king to be a covenant to sign this covenant too for us to have true peace. So the covenanters are not mere revolutionaries. They're not um, trying to throw the king, you know, get rid of the king and set up some kind of republic. They need a king for their system. Hmm. But he's got to be a covenant king. And so they take to arms in 1539. The bishops' wars begin, which, as they were called, is they wanted out with bishops, um, and this is the origin of the term Episcopalian, because the Anglican side wants to support bishops, so Episcopus for the for the, the bishop, and therefore you get that name for the church, which mostly is used over in this country, um, which is rather interesting, I mean, that, that uh, because that's where the hotbed for support for the parliamentary side during the revolution came from Plymouth, came, came from that area where people were uh, very much um, self-described godly. You know, pure, they, they were the Puritans who came over on the Mayflower. Chesterton has this marvelous line. Uh, he says, in America, they have a feast to celebrate the arrival of the pilgrims. In England, we should have a feast to celebrate their departure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so these are communities that are ruled ecclesial communities that are ruled by uh, presbyters councils so already right. you see here how the, the kind of egalitarian spirit that will birth modern liberalism is already at work at the in the far left of the the protestant revolutionaries and it's also right. worth pointing out because uh, calvin held that the presbyters council was essentially like a sort of jury, if we used a word that we use today. It had the authority to interpret the scripture to bind and to rule. That's how Calvin saw it, very much like a like a papal magisterium. Except it was each church had such a council led by the spirit that will that things. It wasn't every man in his Bible, such as you find in in American fundamentalism. So but with the Puritans in Plymouth, that's actually what starts to develop because you don't have an official church structure. And each man has his Bible, and people begin, you know, reading it and, and interpreting it for themselves. So this is rather different than the presbyters' council you see um, in, in other places. So Charles has this big problem. The Scots go to war 
and they even take Newcastle. The English army at this time is very poor. And the English army had been uh, rather poor. It was an army where uh, nobles would come to the field with their own troops, and the king also with his troops. And that, that's how essentially the medieval army had worked. And if you were absolutely desperate, you hired mercenaries from the whether the Danish soldiers or Lanskaneks or, or whatever. Um, England did not have its own, you know, core of professional troops. Mm. So they, those are mostly seen on the continent. And uh, the Scots are very well disciplined with religious fervor. And so they actually defeat Charles's army, which is very poorly uh, equipped, poorly paid, and, and poorly run. So Charles realizes this. And uh, eventually, in 1640, he has to go and make concessions. He's got growing angst and d demands for calling Parliament back in England. He's out of money, and he knows he's going to have to face them in order to get more. So he has to he goes hat in hand to the Scots, and doesn't actually accomplish what he wants to accomplish, but at least gets a cessation of hostilities. Promises to hold up the Book of Common Prayer, etc. Now in Ireland, a similar type of thing had happened. You had uh, the imposition of the, the Book of Common Prayer over there. And <clears throat> one of Charles's ministers, Thomas Wentworth, is, who's, who's dealing with it. Wentworth is uh, one, of, one of Charles's lieutenants, very competent and uh, very much a persecutor of Catholics over there, I might say, mm. also. Um, but the Ulster Scots are happy with him either. So the Ulster Scots are, in the, the, are the part of the plantation uh, which was set up by King James, uh, you know, mostly to get troublesome Scots out of Scotland, move them somewhere else, and have them start as planters in Ireland. Now, in Ireland, um, the the last major conflict in Ireland uh, between the English and the the Irish was the Battle of um, Alas, it, it just flew right out of my mind as I got to say it. It is really here. <laughs> um, yeah, Battle of Kinsale. I'm sorry against Elizabethan troops, where the Irish uh, had the high ground and the Spanish trying to explain to them what they should do. And they, between the Gaelic and the Spanish, they, they, they misunderstood it. So the Irish charged the English position. English said, well, they just snatched uh, feet from the jaws of victory. Mm. <laughs> it, um, it, it's, they literally came in and um, got themselves killed. So the Spanish said, that's it. We're never going to get involved here anymore. And they take off. So the Irish are on their own. So the O'Neills, one of the major uh, clans in Ulster, they end up all leaving the country, and they go into service for the Spanish. They go into service, basically whoever's paying enough money, as mercenaries and whatnot. So the, the natural leadership in, in most places in Ireland does the same. So it's, uh, it's rather for, you know, for the taking. But then when Wentworth comes in, there is a slight aligning of Old English. With that? So that, that's the Earl of Strafford. Yes, well, yes, that's correct. The Earl of Stratford. Um, there's a there's an aligning between Old English and and the Irish. The Old English are English who had been in Ireland since the time of Henry II, in one capacity or another. They all had remained true to the Catholic faith, and they they uh, form the making of what will later become the Irish Confederacy. But they make a petition to Charles I and through and, and to uh, the Earl of Stratford, saying, you know, give you know they because they see what the Scots did. Scots fought, and Scots won, and the Scots got toleration. Give us toleration, too, for the Catholic faith and the Mass, and we will be loyal to you. And that was essentially their message. Uh, well, you know, Stratford wasn't going to tolerate any of that. He establishes a rather large army to keep them in line. But it's actually the very crazy that begins the trouble 
because then you know the the parliamentary MPs, the the, the Presbyterian-minded, the, the Puritans, the Independents, says that, that <clears throat> those who will develop and become independents, they all see this army as the real everything Pym has been talking about. That now we're going to have this this army from Ireland that's going to come and subdue us and reimpose the Catholic faith. That's that's the end game. That's what the, Charles is up to, mm. and which of course is quite ludicrous. And rather Wentworth, uh, sorry, the Earl Strafford had offered Charles that the use of this army for uh, you know if he need for renewed war against the Scots actually. Nevertheless, Charles was out of money. He has to call Parliament. And then Pym immediately gets up and starts announcing his various conspiracy theories and uh, calling upon the king to, to get rid of his ministers. And the, the ministers are the problem, including uh, the Earl of Strafford. They see him as the big enemy because the army in Ireland that the king could potentially use against them. And they can't have it. So um, you know, the machinations continue. Charles dissolves the parliament. So this is called the short parliament. Well, um, that didn't quite uh, work because he was, again, he just needed much rule. So he calls in Parliament again in, uh, in 11th December, in, in, in to, declaring that it will meet the next year. So in 1641, uh, what they call the Long Parliament uh, comes into play because it continued rule until much later, until Cromwell dissolves it mm -hmm. down the road. So the, what they do is they start passing laws that they're supposed to make it impossible for Parliament to be dissolved. They want to take away the, the Star Chamber Court. Star Chamber, um, the king's private court, and it's, and it's part of a tradition that goes back to Henry II. The proceedings are actually carried out in Anglo-French, even at this time. And it's, uh, it's rather the provenance of, of the king. And that's, of course, where over the years during Charles's long personal rule, People who refused to pay, you know, certain taxes that they disagreed with or whatnot would be condemned and have their ears cropped or something. Um, one of the most unpopular of the taxes, of course, ship money. I don't spend too much time on that because everybody learns about that in, in, in history, I imagine. Um, you know, charging counties nowhere near the sea for the upkeep of the navy. In the end, too, it became much harder to collect. People simply did not want to pay it. it was uh, a greater, you know, greater difficulty. But anyway, so as we but just just uh, on that. The um, the role of Mammon here is very important. You mentioned the court of the Star Chamber. Oh yes. Uh, in the sixties and twenties and thirties, Archbishop Lord, who was in a sense politically as maladroit as Master Charles the First, had nevertheless used the court of the Star Chamber to prevent economic injustices by the Whig oligarchy, by this Protestant elite, to force these landowners to give back common land that they had enclosed was impoverishing the peasantry even more. So Lord was essentially the last Archbishop of Canterbury, quote in the, the, the false Archbishop right. of Canterbury, to hold the essentially medieval belief state must work together. Both Commonwealth and Church are collective bodies made up of many into the one, and both so near allied that the one, the Church, can never subsist, but in the other, the Commonwealth, end quote. The basis of the state was social justice. God will not bless the state if magistrates do not execute judgment, if the widow and fatherless have cause to cry out against the thrones of justice. The rising merchant class forced Charles to execute Lord before turning on him and destroying him himself. Within 50 years, men no longer saw things this way and invented the idea of the state as the result of some form of social contract. John Locke's thoughts in 1690 would not appear 
strange to a modern liberal audience. Quote, the great and chief end of men uniting into commonwealths is the preservation of their property. Locke is the father of modern economics, for like all faiths, it requires an absolute, in this case, the absolute inviolable nature of private property. As the economist Barbara Ward noted, the chief purpose of government is to protect private property, which now enjoys the divine rights claimed by kings. So you, hear, you see here a much more prosaic motive, which is to further enrich these, these Protestant oligarchs and ensure, lock in the economic gains of the Protestant revolution and ensure that the, uh, any kind of traditional medieval understanding of society, the harmonies between the social classes cannot come about. And that's precisely how it began, how the entire Protestant Revolution began with the sacking of the monasteries, which were meant for what? Well, for benefit of people. Yep. And the monasteries not only provided uh, you know, tenancy <clears throat> where people could raise meat and, and other food for the monastery, while the monks worked on things like printing and preparing manuscripts and praying, the, and this is actually where things had gone. You know, English, England are less corrupt uh, than you say maybe you'd find in France or in other places where you have monasteries and commend them. You got some three-year-old abbot and all the revenues are going to this or that. Uh, England had a lot of reform in this direction. So the monasteries were performing uh, also educational tasks. They were running free schools teaching Latin, which then would in turn, and according to Renaissance humanist principles, which would in turn prepare you for any office in life. And then you had your pick of government political service. And this is why, you know, when Henry sees, um, you know, this is one of the effects of suppression of the monasteries is the very education that gave him able-bodied servants like Wolsey, Cromwell, and well, now those are gone. And so he replaces them with King's Colleges to you know, try to do that, but which he, the state now has to fund. And uh, out of this, so the, the idea of the the state basically, what this is, is the state preserving distributive justice yep. and pre maintaining the commons, maintaining the social order uh, as a bit in, in favor of the lower of the peasantry, essentially. And you know, because free citizens, they need what they need: common land, which they do some kind of hunting, and yep. at the very least, you know, to get, gain firewood and other things. And this is all being encroached upon, so the nobility can you know have more perks for itself. Right, and specifically the nobility that's the new nobility since the 1530s. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and that that also you know, nothing will breed angst. I mean, you look at uh, the restoration of Catholicism under Queen Mary, and who are the biggest opponents of reunion with Rome? It's not actually the Protestants. It was the Catholics because they saw their profiting off of. Uh, and, and when I say Protestant Catholics, I mean the Catholics in Parliament. They see their fellows profiting off of the sack of the monastery, so they get into it too. So now 20 years later, they are, or their children are, sitting on their gotten gains and terrified that if the church is restored, they're going to have to restore their ill-gotten gains. And it's really Cardinal Poole's very politic and cautious working mm -hmm. that, you know, that brings about a, 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 um, a reproachment where, okay, well, you come in the church and you don't have to give it back, but you should... Make some amends to the people out of the wealth you have now, because they looked at problems that you have candlesticks that were melted down and turned in coin. Well, how would you possibly reckon? You know, and now it's gone to new owners who have no idea of the former theft. And you know, how do you work all of this stuff out? It wasn't just a simpler move to have that reproachment, but the opposition was out of the fear it wouldn't happen. And we'd have to start making amends because we can't have that now, can we? When we have gold cup games, so. 
So in, in a way, the historic materialism is uh, does throw a lot of light on the true historiography here. It's just not as the the bad guys aren't who the revolution are. In fact, it's the opposite. Right. Um, you know, the devil is so cunning here in, in the the black legends. He's waiting. So to make it short, to get to the to where we want to go, the the long parliament now called again with the uh, conspiracy theories, but now there's there's um, more complicated uh, things. So the Earl of Strafford is their enemy, so they want him, you know, out of the picture somehow. Okay, what they do is that they they pass a attainder and they demand the king sign it to have the Earl of Stratford. Uh, killed, and that's Thomas Wentworth, who had been, you know, who had created so much of uh, I mean, Ireland in, the, in a strong hand in, in Ireland. So, and they forced Charles to sign it. And Charles doesn't want to sign it because, because you know, Wentworth is his friend <laughs> sometime. And they say, well, you know, says this this will satisfy them. This will stop the whole thing if they have my head. And so Charles is forced to consent to it. Uh, and although he's very remorseful, and he considers that as one of his greatest uh, crimes <laughs> throughout his life, actually, that, that he had consented to Stafford's execution. So then, you know, the, the negotiations uh, between, you know, they get to a certain point, and then a major event throws them all off. And that's the Ulster uh, Rebellion of 1649, which then spreads to the rest of Ireland. So, because you no longer have Wentworth ways to keep Ireland under um, under governance, so uh, the last of the O'Neills leads a, a sort of revolution to kick out the plantation Ulster, but he loses control of the troops, and they and they they kill you know not that many do they actually directly kill you know some some thousands, and it's rather that more of them. Thousands more die from exposure to the elements, not having any, any home or any warmth, uh, being drowned in rivers and so many things while they're being hunted. And so news of this hits England like uh, like a bomb, really. And you know, one of the problems that Charles had suffered through this whole reign is that his ship was ineffective. Everyone's got a printing press somewhere where they can print out pamphlets, not so much books, because a book is a major investment. It's going to take uh, many months, though many months is far better than 20 years uh, before printing. But still, a pamphlet is much easier. You, you can produce it within a couple of days and have them all spread out. So, and this is where the pantry really takes on uh, its own life. So that reports come in of, of three thousand dead, of seven thousand dead. Quickly, they become seventy thousand dead. A mm. hundred. There weren't even that many that many Ulster planters in in uh, Ireland, but it becomes like a hundred and fifty thousand dead. And they start depicting these horrid, ghoulish tortures that, um, you know, something out of, uh, you know, out of some, some modern horror film or something of this sort of, uh, you know, babies being tortured, lurid, you know, sexual imagery. All of it works itself in these woodcuts and pamphlets, and they're all posted for people to read. This is the latest news. It's basically, you know, fake news. <laughs> it's day watching uh, CNN or you're watching uh, the, the BBC, or you're watching as they reported something, and then it's, you know, they're, they're actually showing you another country and saying it's this, and that's to whip up whatever narrative is supposed to be whipped up, right? Well, that's essentially what's happening here. And, you know, the horrors of the, the Thirty Years' War, they, 
people are not quite, you know, conscious of these things. So this is a new, wow, this is where Dorian stepped at. And who's, who's the, the culprit? Catholics. Those Catholics killing and murdering our own, and they're going to do it to us. It's only a matter of time. And so this fundamentally changes the negotiation uh, between Charles and Parliament. Charles wants an army to go play, and the uh, Parliament will not give him the funds. So there are loggerheads over taxes and the king's control of the army. And yet the king's defenders rightly asked, at what time has the king not had, had over his own army? How, how is that going to work? So they, um, in the meantime, they get another bill of attainer to arrest Loud, uh, uh, Archbishop Loud. And what really, you know, sends this uh, dispute, which is going nowhere, into uh, its final stages, is there's rumors in the House of Commons that are slipping out that Henrietta Marie is the next object of a bill of attainer, right? Some of of Pym's conspiracies, and she's kind of the point person for the papal invasion, now is taken hold in the Commons, and so they want to actually arrest the Queen on a bill of attainer. So that's, this is why Henrietta Marie tells Charles, you need to deal with this. And so Charles goes to arrest five members, the ringleaders, as it were, which is, of course, Pym, John Pym at the head of it, also John Hampton, Denzel Holes, uh, Hasselring, forget his first name, Sir Hasselring, uh, Arthur, Sir Arthur Hasselring, and William Strode. There, there's, uh, there's movies that try to stick Cromwell in here. Cromwell had nothing to do with any of this. Cromwell, try to stick Cromwell in here. Cromwell had nothing to do with any of this. Cromwell had just come through the, his very difficult phase of um, discovering his salvation mm-hmm. as uh, this big problem for Calvinists. Am I saved or am I not saved? And he's, he spent time thinking he turned from you know country gentleman to poor country farmer doing the work of commoners. Now, all of a sudden, he's, he's emerged from his struggle convinced that he... Is, is the Lord's anointed, he is part of the elect. And he does take his seat, he is present at this event as an MP, very minor and un- otherwise unknown MP. And and he will very much be on the parliamentary side, but he doesn't have anything to do with these particular uh, goings-on. So anyway, so Charles goes into attempt these five men in January 1642. But then the um, uh, somebody actually in the Queen's... Uh, uh, entourage, Lucy Hay, she goes over, she's, she's actually a Puritan as well, so it warns them that this, this arrest is coming. And so they sneak up Parliament and are taken away in the Thames in a boat where they're actually you know, given a, a hero celebration in London. Charles goes down and to arrest them, and, and actually there's an interesting scene where he bangs on the House of Commons and they refuse to admit him. And they actually, um, I only found this out a couple of years. Actually, it was Charles Coulomb who, who told me about this. In Canada, they actually have, or did have, the same ceremony open up their, their uh, parliament. Yep. And I thought that, that was supremely interesting. They actually keep the ceremony going. But nevertheless, um, Charles eventually gets admittance, demands these five members, and the House, you know, and not here. So now the king is, is empty, is, comes away empty-handed, even worse than doing that. I see the birds have flown. The birds have flown, and, uh, and he's openly mocked by his own people. So now he decides, okay, um, London is not the safest place in the moment. And so he departs for Nottingham, and it's there that he sets, he sets a standard, declares the parliament in rebellion. There's really nothing left but to fight for it, so the war is on. I mean, it's not quite as simple as that, but it still takes place. 
But now the country has to line up. And see, the Marxists, the Marxist school of history tries to play this conflict as, well, it's the haves versus the have-nots. And all the elites, you know, they, of course, support the monarchy, but the, the, the peasantry, those who didn't have the proletariat, they're the ones rising up. Well, I mean, there, there might be a smidgen of truth in that narrative on side of those who do and, and the way their attitudes will develop. But in reality, there's, it's nothing of the sort. It's, it's every occupation, every class, they're a split in uh, which way they go, in supporting the king or supporting, as they say, the king and parliament. So you have no, you know, various uh, you know, nobles taking, getting their men and joining the king's side. You have them starting with the king and deciding they want to switch sides and join the parliament. And, uh, and, and you have minor skirmishing that takes place all over the country. Um, you know, for some time. And then you have the, the, the first uh, real battle, Battle of Edge Hill, mm. um, which is a horrible battle. It, it's equivalent to, in the American Civil War, um, the Battle of Manassas, or mm -hmm. uh, some of these terrible battles where just so many die. And, and it's horrific for everybody involved. Um, Edge Hill is very much like that. It's a beautiful spot. Uh, everything I've seen, um, unfortunately, I've never been there myself, but everything I've seen of it, it's an absolute free spot. And, and this is where brother against brother and father against son. This horrible battle takes place. And so it came very close because it, the, the warfare at the time still has not moved to um, musket fire infantry. It's still pike phalanxes. Uh, well, basically, this is the last period for them. Uh, you won't see them again in, in battles after this period. Um, the same thing in the Thirty Years' War, the Spanish Tercio, uh, which incorporates both pike formation and swordsmen and uh, musketeers, who set up and work in unison, and some even some heavy artillery thrown in there, too. Um, you know, the, it was uh, an incredibly effective unit. It dominated the battlefield for 100 years or more. And it's only the, the newer tactics and weapons broke the, the Tercio, most famously at the Battle of Wakwa, and that was the end of uh, you know that style of, of fighting. In England, it, it, this would carry on largely through this conflict, and then again, it was switched almost entirely to musket fire and cavalry tactics. So, so you're in very close, close-packed formations with pikes, um, you know, forcing you to do a lot of, you know, heavy work and then, you know, yielding to swords and, and then you would have, you know, musketry and artillery at, at different places and, and the cavalry. And the cavalry was always complicated because you had um, people brought their own horse and their own household and, uh, and those in their retinue and in their, in their shire and they would join them. And, and it wouldn't necessarily be a cohesive unit. Sometimes the cavalry were every man for themselves. Mm. And this is one of the great problems that, uh, so Prince Rupert of the Rhine, we mentioned him earlier, uh, he's actually the grandson of King James I. And his brother Maurice uh, joined the Royalist Army, so they're princes of the blood. And Rupert is always, uh, he's, he's not English, so you know, he's, he's, there's kind of the, the natural uh, xenophobia comes in, and he's a very skilled cavalry commander with very unruly nobility that, that don't particularly care about for they're, they're more interested in, in plundering the baggage train mm. than they are, and he keep people on the battlefield. It's a constant struggle for poor Rupert as um, you know, being the head of his majesty's horse.
the uh, it, so it's, a, it's a terrible battle. There's really no clear winner. And then there's, uh, you know, skirmishes throughout the rest of the year. And, and it keeps getting worse. And so to, 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 you have the Battle of Marston Moor, which is what deals a, a massive blow to the Royalist uh, yes. army. And uh, which is, so that takes place up um, in Yorkshire. And, not really in Yorkshire, but it's up near York. Um, and the Scots enter the war too. So the Scots have been, you know, sitting in a, for some time, kind of watching, seeing what's going on. And John Pym comes to the Scots and declares the Parliament will seek in covenant. The Parliament will officially become Presbyterian, and as long as you help us against the king. And that changes the game, and we see it here at, at the Battle of Marston Moor, where the Royalist infantry, very strong, um, pinned in on two sides. And the, and the worst of it was the, the cavalry led by a certain uh, commander named Oliver Cromwell. This is the first time Cromwell's name uh, appears actively in the battle. So Cromwell... Uh, we mentioned him already. He's, he's a Puritan, and he's he's also what's called an independent. And this this emerges as a very strong group uh, later in the in the conflict. Independents differ from the Presbyterians because the Presbyterians think that you need to have a state, a, a, a confessional state. The the king has to be a confessional Presbyterian, uh, admitted Presbyterian religion. That's what they think you should have, rather than the Anglican. The independents believe there should be no state-established religion, that there should be taller all Protestants, uh, only them, and we should uh, not have you know parliaments or kings deciding what the what the religion of the nation is, mm. and that that's a view that will become the view during the Cromwellian years, and which is actually interesting. We'll return to that point, but uh, so Cromwell has his his cavalry are volunteers. And they, which have come in to replace the, the Duke of Essex's uh, cavalry, which was completely ineffective and at Edge Hill. So they, they, they stay in formation, they stay on the battlefield, um, and, and they, they obey, their discipline is incredible, and they obey their commanders, they don't kill the baggage train, they turn after uh, Christ Rupert's cavalry, and then, uh, you know, pin down the infantry as the Scots cut them down on the other side. It's a horrible defeat for the Royalists. And Prince Rupert actually gets lost, um, you know, separated from the, the Royalist retreat, and he has to hide in the bushes. They're hunting for him. And But he must have marveled at watching Cromwell's cavalry mm. being so well-disciplined and so well-ordered. It's, it's one of the, the joys of a commander on the battlefield to, to give a command and they do it, and as opposed to everyone, you know, in complete disorder. And, and, of course, those armies with the, the superior drill and the superior discipline almost always are, you know, the far more effective force, especially here we've got, you know, nobles who don't even like each other sitting next to each other. They're just going to fly in every direction. So, and this is, this is a huge problem. So the, arm, the, the parliament, uh, actually Cromwell himself, because uh, MP, he gives a, a petition to the parliament saying, you know, we need to have a quick way to end this war. As we keep going down to more skirmishes, then the Royalists build their forces up again. And this is just going to keep happening. We need the, the knockout blow. So let's establish a professional army. And they do, which uh, we, becomes the what we call the new model army. And actually, the, the first redcoats as well. The uh, the cheapest dyes of the time were red. Hmm. And so this, they received standard uniforms, standard uh, tactics, drill. And it's the very first paid professional force uh, run by the, the government in the English Isles since Roman times, really. Um, 
not that no king hired mercenaries or what, certainly Henry II and Henry VII even, uh, but in this case, this is the state's own army. And, uh, and it brings in people from all over the country, different political, different, uh, you know, commoner backgrounds. And as they get success, they also get more bold. And we'll see that in a little bit. So the, the first test comes at the Battle of Naseby which actually is, sometimes is presented as, and they completely knocked out their royalist forces. It was a, it was a close thing. Um, but once, but the defeat was absolutely total for the royalist side. There were a couple of times where the royalists could have uh, turned the side. Um, I, I don't want to spend two more hours going on the, the, the battles, because I will. So <laughs> the, the effect is the royalists are completely en route. Charles was actually prepared to take his, his horse and charge right into them, and he stopped. Uh, by by a nobleman, to, you know, begging him not to throw his life away, and so Charles then flees. Uh, all the royal Scotland, there was a royalist uprising against the Presbyterian Scots, uh, led by Montro uh, the, the Lord Montrose, but he gets uh, defeated right around in an, in this time period. Uh, Charles gets and he's taken to um, in, in, into prison and guarded there by the army. And in this, he actually finds himself in a really interesting position, even as his forces are disintegrating. Uh, the army and parliament are falling out with each other. Because the parliamentarians, you know, they want uh, to, again, to establish this, you know, state Presbyterian religion. And Cromwell wants an independent religion. Uh, the army is unhappy about uh, so many things that the parliament is doing. And the king could actually solve a lot of these. But there's also discontent in the army. The army also thinks Charles should be completely deposed and, and gotten out. So there's, there's divisions even in the army. And so Charles is like, well, here here we go. So he starts negotiating with Cromwell and you know, offering concessions to him. And we'll do this and we'll do this. And, and Cromwell's really interested. And the parliament's getting more upset. Like, uh oh, maybe we need to negotiate with the king now. And so they come and also try to negotiate with Charles. And... But then he escapes, and in his escape uh, ignites a second uh, war. But it's all complete, horribly wrong. It's all completely discoordinated. That um, this what was sometimes called the second. Um, I, I, I usually just lump it all into one block conflict because skirmishes are still going on the entire time that Charles is in uh, prison. But nevertheless, he gets out, and now. You know, so now the army is enraged, and the army says, "See, he lied to us. He, he, you know, betrayed us. And so he's the man of blood, and every bit of blood that has to be spilt is on his hands." So Charles uh, flees to the white, and um, and they arrest him there. Uh, he thought that the local lord there would help him. He doesn't. So he's back in in jail, and then the the final second war of the sixteen forty eight dissipates. And so now the army is fully in control of the country. Cromwell's army, although the actual commander of but he's more or less a figurehead at this point. It's really Cromwell running all operations and uh, you know, managing most of the troops. So now there's that problem of what to do with Charles. And the parliament is actually some more terrified of the army it created than it is of Charles at this moment. Mm. So the army is now demanding Charles's death. And this is beyond anything that... You know, this is not what the Presbyterians want, so the Scots are actually opposed to this, because they need a king for their covenanting church. And the uh, the parliament is uneasy with this. So 
what happens, you have Pride's purge. So uh, Colonel Thomas Pride goes into the parliament and forcibly removes anybody who's opposed to trying to execute And so this parliament is derisively known as the Rump, the Rump Parliament, and he comes to the events of 1649. And this is where Charles The revolution actually, eats its own children. Yes, it does. Um, so Charles shows himself in, in this period to be uh, very courageous. He, he argues with the, uh, during his trial, refuses to plead. Although in the end, it was, it was a foregone conclusion <clears throat> what would happen. So on uh, uh, 30th January, I believe, uh, Charles was executed by beheading. And that was actually a rather interesting thing. So people expected lightning would strike and lightning would <clears throat> come down and, and slay all the parliamentarians and it didn't happen. But it was still you know, kind of a ter- almost like killing a god. I mean, a king is a sacramental figure. A king is chosen by God. And here the people have killed him. But it changed a lot of perspectives. And so then, uh, you know, to bring this period, you know, to a war to a close. Uh, Cromwell goes over to Ireland because that's where most of the royalists have gone. And, you know, eventually he has to come back because the Scots uh, crown Charles' son, uh, Charles II, and at Pontefract Castle. So then Cromwell has to go and he crushes the Scots at Dunbar. Charles famously uh, hides in an oak tree. And then he's taken uh, by some Catholics to a... Uh, a priest hole, and he hides in there with Je- with a Jesuit, and that that teaches him about the Catholic religion, which makes him very much amenable. And of course, I think really, you know, leads to his deathbed conversion to the Church much later. But um, nevertheless, now Cromwell's completely of the country. And you start having uh, there's another group of figures we haven't talked about, but they're absolutely essential, and they're called the Levellers. And so throughout all of these events of the war, you have this man named Richard. Richard Lilburn, and he has quite a number of followers, levelers, because they believe in eradicating all aristocracy, all titles, and uh, you know, for, they were put in prison, of course, by the <clears throat> by the royalists before the war, and even Cromwell can't quite uh, get behind them. Uh, is it Lilburn or is it um, Rainbow? So they have a big debate in the army because there's all these levelers in the army. They don't, you know. They don't want to go to Presbyterians because the Presbyterians want a king. You know, this, this big division is noted. So they have a big debate about it. Mm. These are called the Putney debates. Yes. And they actually weren't discovered until the 19th century. They were put down in uh, shorthand and made up later. And so a lot of histories until the 19th century leave all this out. But it's rather interesting. So you have Cromwell and his son-in-law, Henry Ireton, and they're arguing in favor of a parliamentary aristocracy. All right, we can't take the revolution too far, folks. We can only go so far. And, and others, they, they argue instead for the revolution to go all the way. Let's get rid of titles. Let's get rid of the House of Lords. Let's be rid of bishops. Let's be rid of the whole lot. So, but, um, you know, one of the, let's see, well, one of the levelers says, I can't remember which one. I have the quote here. I, I forgot to attribute it probably. I do not find anything in the law of God that a lord shall choose 20 burgesses and a gentleman but two, or a poor man shall choose none. I am a poor man, therefore I must be pressed. I must be conscripted. For, for Americans, we're not familiar with that. If I have no interest in the kingdom, I must suffer by all their laws. 
by the right or wrong. Gentlemen with three or four lordships, God knows how they got them, can always get into Parliament and evict the poor from their homes. I would fain know whether the potency of rich men do not this, and so keep them, poor men, under the greatest tyranny that has ever in the world. Really, I think the poorest he that is, is in England hath a life to a live as, as the greatest he. And therefore, truly, sir, I think it's clear that every man that is to live under a government ought first by his own consent to himself under that government. And I do think that the poorest man in England is not at all bound in a strict sense to that government that he hath not had a voice to put himself under. So and this is from a, you know, from a commoner who's now in the army and now has a voice. And this is, uh, it, it, and so now I can't imagine that any, hardly any modern American, even traditionalists that are <laughs> moderate, uh, self-proclaimed monarchists, would have a hard time being against it. In fact, that would sound really good to him. But what it is is also a revolutionary cause to, to undo social order. So really, what's, what's the solution? What's counter-revolutionary? Counter-revolutionary is fixing the injustices that affect this poor man yes. uh, in so many ways. Which have been created uh, partly by a previous revolution. Exactly. So it's, it's always the revolutionary solutions to revolutionary causes, to revolutionary right. problems, and that, that's a recurrent the devil uses in history. Marx uh, lamented the loss of the, the essentially what we call the, in, in a state, the mom-and-pop shop, the brick-and-mortar mm -hmm. uh, store. That, that a small-owned thing. He lamented that loss of so much of the Industrial Revolution. But at the same time, his solution called for wiping all of those off the map. In fact, getting rid of those faster. Because the ultimate goal is to get rid of all property ownership, and therefore the mom and word is detrimental to the ultimate cause. It's going to make people want property. We can't have that. So that's the first thing that has to go. And interesting enough, in um, Minneapolis, for example, where they have these terrible hits, um, following the, the, that tragic incident with the, you know, with rightfully said, the murder of George Floyd by a police officer, um, nevertheless, they absolutely, and everyone marvels at this disproportionate response. But well, what did they burn down? They burned down a number of black-owned small businesses in a very high real estate part of town. Which and it'll be interesting to watch who's going to come up the rubble and, and set up some new luxury properties down there. At least that's my prediction for what's going to happen. Area. And I, I find that rather interesting because that's essentially what happens in all revolutions, and and you see it no less here, you know, with the you know the complete you know desire, this animus delendi on the whole system that all the whole England that was England is what the left will tear down, and their ideas in spite of how much Cromwell and Ireton and others resist them, their ideas have essentially dominated. I mean, today, what does a peerage mean? I mean, usually it means you have to sell your castle because you can't get up, right? Mm -hmm. the, um, I, I met uh, last year Lord Christopher Monckton, and he was explaining this whole, you know, the whole process where he had to sell his castle for, for taxes and medical bills and um, you, you know, things of this sort. Englishmen don't think very much about uh, peerages and, and Lord to what I read in, in blogs and other things, it would seem like the average Englishman would rather those weren't. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you're in that, uh, there to see it, but um, 
so anyway, so, so these, these debates, you know, continue. You have poor men that would never have even looked at a nobleman. Uh, now, you know, would, would smack him with a gauntlet because he, he, just because he's a nobleman. So, you know, so Cromwell's army is completely loyal to him. So Cromwell then, you know, to what, what concessions can he give him in, in all of these different uh, matters? So you have the beginning of the uh, matters. So you have the beginning of the English Republic, sort of. Uh, those republics end up being de facto dictatorships in one way or another at some point. This one starts off right off the bat. Cromwell walks into Parliament and speaks in praises of Parliaments and representation and so many things. And then he begins shouting, but you are no Parliament. And he dissolves them, much as the king had done. And so he rules for a time without a parliament, and then he establishes a parliament of the godly to begin the rule of the church of the saints. And this fits in, uh, this period also fits in with a number of uh, things in Puritan thought, one of which is the end times. All of early Protestantism, the one ecumenical doctrine is that the Pope is the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. But if the, the anti, if Antichrist is present on the earth, that means the end is near. So, so uh, now is the time for the Church of the Resist Antichrist. And now that we've gotten rid of the, the, the Shion of Antichrist here, the king, and this whole Catholic conspiracy, now is the time for the Church of the Saints. And that also leads into uh, the reintroduction of Jews into in England. So the Jews had been forbidden from being in England since uh, Edward I. Uh, he'd expelled them, and it was against the law. And sometimes uh, you'd have Jews show up under different pseudonyms, uh, working in London and other places, but for the most part, they, they were not in the country. Now they're, and there's this hope and expectation among many Puritans that they'll convert as a true sign of the last times. Mm -hmm. um, Cromwell and his ministers are thinking rather that uh, they'll, they'll bring a lot of money in and they could really use that right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, it's always the mercantile interest. So then you have um, an, an interesting thing happen, and I'm not necessarily going in chronological order here. Cromwell was, um, you know, the declared high protector. And one of the things then the Puritans say, all right, Lord Protector, you need to now protect public morals and establish godly society. So Cromwell establishes the major generals. And the job of the major generals is to root out vice, to eliminate all the, uh, you know, all these popish things that are still around, anything that's not in accord with the Bible. So... They, uh, they go after gambling, horse racing, uh, brothel, theater, Shakespeare. Shakespeare shut down. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, men dressing up as women. This is just base immorality. You can't have that. So that's shut down altogether. Even inns were not exempt. They, they go to. And Christmas, the war on Christmas begins. The first war, uh, because Anglicans keep Christmas also. And now it's declared illegal, popish. Uh, Yuletide is officially called Fooltide. And you have somebody, and you find pamphlets from the period, Father Christmas is, and there's a roundhead uh, major general declaring, uh, you're not wanted here. <laughs> and and uh, you know, it's so many things of this sort to, uh, and if Cromwell had lived another 20 years, Englishmen might not know what Christmas is. Uh, it's like that line, oh, it's always Christmas. Uh, and it's certainly not all winter, but certainly it would never be Christmas. Yes. So, the, uh, and, and that was actually spared by Cromwell dying. Um, but it also proved, this actually is the beginning of a lot of opposition. It proves the Puritans really were puritanical. And just 
maybe we haven't quite gotten what we wanted. The, the new parliaments that Cromwell establishes, establishes are at loggerheads over Cromwell's command of the army and taxes, which is the precise army was at, or not the army, the parliament was at loggerheads with Charles IV for his command of the army and taxes. Right? So it's, but Cromwell is absolutely in command of an extremely efficient army, whereas Charles was barely, very poorly funded army. So the revolution has given you something far worse you had to begin with. So to try to uh, bring Cromwell down a bit, they offer him the, the monarchy. They offer to make him king. And the reason they offer to make him king is that, well, a king is a known quantity in England. We know what a king is, whereas we don't quite know what a Lord High Protector is. His position is rather novel and he can do whatever he wants. So the, uh, the result is that, you know, Cromwell, of course, refused to accept it formally. But coinage and other things appear, you know, with uh, his image, you know, even says Oliver Rex uh, uh, on some of the coinage. Mm. When Cromwell eventually dies, he's uh, very state. Uh, Purcell writes, you know, some, writes the music. You have, um, what is the name? Uh, state poets, state paid poets at great expense. All these royal honors to someone who's really not a king. He was regicide. It is the strangest thing. He's even succeeded by his own son, who takes on uh, Richard Cromwell, who becomes Lord High Protector. But it all falls apart. Richard is not going to keep control of the army. And the, the troops surrounding him uh, look to see how they can use him one way or the other. Richard is nervous that uh, blood is going to be spilt in his name. So he resigns, lest, uh, lest he be the cause of any injuries. And the period is derisively known as the reign of Queen Dick. <laughs> Tumble down. <laughs> the, uh, right. <laughs> and so he, he couldn't uh, control it. So then Lord uh, Monk, who was um, a royalist that uh, made his peace with Cromwell and fought for Cromwell, he now puts out the feelers to Charles II, to Charles II in exile. And so they sign um, the Treaty of Breda, Charles then, you know, declares that there's going to be toleration and uh, only the ones directly responsible, uh, you know, for his father's murder would be punished and there would be respecting the rights of parliament and so many other things. And so turns and is, is received with a magnificent coronation. Um, a knight of the household gives the traditional challenge to anyone who would question his right of kingship. It was almost as if to observers... Nothing had ever happened, almost. Mm. And so now, except quite, you know, many things had. And those would be the challenges of Charles II's reign. So I suppose next time we did the Restoration, uh, this would be a good place to kind of break off from. Excellent, yes. And I read, um, Ryan, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, just on the, the Restoration there, I don't know if you, you, you must have read, read uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France by Joseph de Maist. He has quite a beautiful description of the return of the triumphant Charles and the sort of melting away of the opposition and he he talks about as you say how it's it was how natural it was because it was the return of a father and it's in accord with nature and so the uh, counter revolution is is bland is easy but yes i'd i'd uh, love to continue this story with you in the future and discuss the completion of the english revolution or the phase of it leading up to 1688